3: WNYC Studios. Hey,
1: today we are repodcasting a show uh, with something extra, an update. This show, which we did a couple years back, is called Patient Zero, um, which sort of took a look at the origins of things, not surprisingly a disease, but also other things too. And, uh, you know, you hear all that. But I wanted to step in and say that uh, in the middle of the show, we're going to slip from looking back at a disease that... Started a way long time ago to examining a disease that, um, you know, as I speak, this is happening right now. Our senior editor, Soren Wheeler, will bring you that. Uh, In the meantime, here's the show.
4: Uh, Wait, you're listening. Okay.
1: All right. Okay.
0: All right. You're listening listening to Radiolab
5: from (laughs) WNYC
0: and
6: NPR.
0: So have we said where we are? I on tape yet?
7: Uh,
1: Starting us off today are our producers Lynn Levy and Sean Cole.
7: Very pretty day to be on an abandoned island where victims of contagious disease were quarantined. And one in particular who uh, lived here, died here, never believing that she was in fact sick and dangerous.
3: So, well, this is a story that begins when? It,
7: well, it's actually, it starts in 1906. And it doesn't start on the island, it starts in Oyster Bay. Ooh, nice neighbor. Very nice. There was this one rich family on vacation there. And
8: their daughter gets sick. She gets sick first. This is Judy Levitt. I am a professor emerita at the University of Wisconsin. And she
7: wrote a book about this story. So, basically, the girl, the daughter, has a fever. Then her sister comes down with it. And then her mom a maid
8: about six out of eleven in the family get sick,
7: and with this disease, the fever is just the first part of it.
8: both uh, diarrhea or constipation are reported, so it can go either way, I guess what
7: is it? Typhoid hmm.
8: and they couldn't figure out what had caused the disease. So they called in this sanitary engineer named George Soper
7: with the public health department. He was a go-to guy for outbreaks like this. Back then, the Department of Public Health was thinking, you know, would you get sick because of Something dirty near you in in the well or in the pipes. Yeah. So he looks into all of that.
8: Did a whole uh, test on the house and the water and everything. Couldn't find anything. And so he
7: starts talking to the family. And
8: he started quizzing them all, and they remember.
7: Eventually, he builds up this whole picture of of several outbreaks. Going back
5: years. 1900, Mamaronek. A New York family had a house for the summer. 1902, Dark Harbor, Maine. 1904, Seven Cases. Sands Point, New York. Autumn, 1906. Winter,
7: 1907. New York City. All these cases, and they all had one thing in common. What? Each of these families had employed the same cook. Really? Which is funny, Because when you cook food, you kill the bacteria in the food. Oh, so it couldn't be the cook then. But this cook...
8: Her most famous dish was peach melba, which is ice cream and fresh peaches.
7: Fresh peaches. Raw fruit. That was
8: a perfect medium.
7: And the cook's name was Mary Mallon. Mary Mary. Mary Wait a second, Sean Cole.
3: Typhoid.
7: Typhoid Mary is what we're talking about. Oh, so we know this story. No, you don't know this story. What do you mean? Everybody thinks they know this story. I thought I knew this story. And then when I looked into it, I realized I didn't know the first thing about it. And when you look into the details, they tell us some very difficult things about who we were and who we still are in a lot of ways. It's all in the details, all of the juice and mm. problem. Like, like in like the like, like the the peach, juice. Juice. Yeah, the peach juice. Just like the peach yeah. juice. We're
3: still dealing with Wait. it. Wait. I'm Robert Krulwich. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. The, the gear I'm abu This is Radio Lab, And in this hour...
1: A series of stories that all hew to that delicious story archetype we call... Patient Zero. The First Cause. We'll try to trace ideas and trends and massive social traumas like pandemics back to that one... Person. Or one critter. Yeah. Or
3: the other way you call it is called the but for. If you didn't have this thing, but for this thing, you wouldn't have the rest of the story. I like the but for. The but for. But, meanwhile. Back to the peaches. So, George Soper's
7: like, I've got to find this woman. And when he finds her,
8: she's in New York City working for another family.
7: The laundress had recently been taken to the
5: Presbyterian Hospital with typhoid fever. This is from an article Soper wrote called The Curious
7: Case of Typhoid Mary. And the only child of the family, a lovely daughter, was dying of it. So he goes to the house, walks into the kitchen, sees this woman, five foot six. Blonde hair, blue eyes. Had a good figure and might have been called athletic
5: had she not been a little too heavy. Irish immigrant, 36 years old. Not particularly clean.
8: And he says, Mary Mallon, I think you are causing disease in people and I want uh, samples of your urine, feces, and blood. <laughs>
7: <laughs> good afternoon. <laughs> and she says, What are you accusing me of being sick? Playing the role of Mary is Columbia Public Health Professor David Rossner. How dare you? I'm not
9: a sick person. What does she do? She traces him out of the building.
5: With a fork in her hand. A serving fork. A serving fork? Yeah. I felt rather lucky to escape.
1: But did she have typhoid? Um, I mean,
7: did she outwardly have typhoid? Well, that's the thing. She never had any symptoms. She felt perfectly healthy. She was actually the first documented case in North America of a healthy carrier which is to say someone who has the disease and is contagious but never actually feels the symptoms symptoms. Hmm. so in one weird way Soper's thrilled like he's only read about this and then here she is in front of him but think of how all of this must have sounded to Mary I mean some guy from outer space comes into your kitchen and says you're diseased and you're hurting people I mean, she must have thought, What? I feel
6: fine. I'm living a moral life. I'm not a vagrant. I'm employed. I'm a good, solid
9: citizen. Mm-hmm. You know, you would be crazed too, wouldn't you, even today? You'd,
3: you'd probably grab your knife,
9: yeah. Yeah, you'd
7: grab your knife.
3: Well, does he have any evidence, though, that she is spreading the disease? Home? Not yet. That's
7: why he needs her poop. Ah. <sighs> So he goes back, finds her at a rooming house. She kicks him out, swears at him. She
8: apparently had quite a temper.
7: And then the health department uh, sends in this female doctor.
8: By the name of S. Josephine Baker, maybe she could ask for blood, feces, and urine a little more gently. <laughs> I just than... <laughs> don't know how you
7: ask for that gently. But she tries, and when it doesn't work, she comes back a little bit later with cops.
8: And they come to the house, and Mary Mallon when she realizes what's happening, disappears.
7: What do you mean, disappears? She just vanishes?
8: Completely vanishes. They end up searching the entire place, and they can't find her. Finally, I think they're about to leave when one of them spots... Her skirt at coming outside of a door. It's a little piece of calico. It kind of stuck in a doorway.
9: They open the door, and there she is.
8: And so they drag her out, and she comes out kicking and screaming and...
9: Screaming and kicking?
8: It takes all of them to drag her out.
7: Protesting?
8: they get her in the ambulance, and Josephine Baker sits on her, according to her. (laughs) Sits on her.
7: And Baker later said...
8: Something like, it was like being uh, in a cage with an angry lion. (laughs) So they
7: take her down to the hospital.
8: They tested her feces and urine, and they found that, yes, she was, in fact, a carrier of live typhoid bacilli. It's
4: a weird island, man. I spent a while on him.
8: So they isolate her, and they ultimately move her
3: Okay good.
8: from Manhattan to North Brother Island.
0: Let's have a bit of a haunted vibe.
8: Yeah. And there she
7: is. Thanks, man. On, we went there to just to Try to get our heads around what she must have thought. What do you think? What was the island like? Man, everything is completely overgrown.
3: It was really creepy. Creepy because it was in such
7: dissolution? Yeah, yeah. Just be careful where you step. On one end, there are all of these medical, former medical buildings, including a giant hospital where they isolated tuberculosis patients. So a big brick, stately building. And then on the other side of the island, there's smaller wooden buildings that are crushed. This may be where her cottage is. Where her cottage would be if it was still standing, but it's not standing anymore.
8: Well, it was one room, one room. Uh, It had a kitchen, it had a, I guess, a sleeping area and a sitting area. It probably wasn't so bad if you didn't have to stay there. (laughs) You know, any places that you're not free to leave uh, becomes like a prison. So
7: we're marching around and then Lynn says to me Hey look at the view and Holy moly It's right there That's when it really hit me If this is where her cabin was Then one window of it Looked exactly onto Manhattan
10: She could have seen where she used to live
7: You can see The traffic on the streets This was like The most horrible seaside vacation.
8: Almost the whole time they had her incarcerated, they took feces three times a week, which is, you know, it's not pleasant to have to do that. Um, And sometimes she was negative and sometimes she was positive.
7: Wait, what? So that's, that's another thing that they were figuring out at the time. So she was probably an intermittent carrier. What does that mean? The disease is always in her, but sometimes she excretes it, and sometimes she doesn't. Oh, that must have been confusing for her.
6: When I first came here, I was so nervous and almost prostrated with grief and trouble. My eyes began to twitch.
7: This is from a letter that Mary wrote from the island.
6: I have, in fact, been a peep show for everybody.
7: But if you keep reading it, and in fact it's addressed to a lawyer, it's clear that she was fighting this. And she had been sending her own feces samples herself to a private lab in Manhattan, and each one of those was negative.
6: Really? The tuberculosis men would say, there she is, the kidnapped woman.
7: Yeah, that is poison ivy. She sues the city and loses. Still, there are all of these questions as to whether any of this is legal. I mean, even George Soper, the guy who hunted her down, said it was contrary to the Constitution of the United States to hold her under the circumstance. And how long was she on the island for? Three years. Wow. And then what changed was a new health commissioner took over.
8: And so he says it's just not right that we keep a healthy woman locked up like this. Mm-hmm. She was not dangerous to anybody if she didn't cook. He lets her go.
7: He lets her go? Yeah. Back to Manhattan. But he makes her promise.
8: She did promise. She signed an affidavit. Saying
7: she'll never cook again. And she was released. They, gave, they, they set her up with a job as a laundress, and they went, here you go, Mary. And then, uh, you know... They kept track of her for a while. Mm. Uh, and then at a certain point, they kind of stopped keeping
3: track of her. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so, how many years will go by? Five. Five. What happens next?
7: Uh, There's an outbreak of typhoid. (laughs) (laughs) Where? Where? At a maternity hospital. Oh, you're kidding. Josephine Baker, who sat on her in the ambulance before, she says that she goes and pays a visit and walks into the kitchen, and she says the first person that she encountered was typhoid Mary Mallon. George Soper did some uh, legwork on where Mary had been, and it turned out she had worked at a restaurant, two hotels, an inn, and a sanatorium, as well as the hospital. And at least according to his account, two of the people that she made sick uh, during those couple years were children. Hmm.
5: She was now a woman who could not claim innocence. She was known willfully and deliberately to have taken desperate chances with human life. She had abused her privilege. She had broken her parole.
8: So then they put her back on North Brother Island, back in her bungalow. Um, and there she sits.
5: She was a dangerous character and must be treated accordingly.
3: Absolutely. She
5: broke, broke
3: her parole. Yeah, I totally agree. She made a deal and she didn't keep the deal.
7: But the thing is, is that at the time she was sent back to the island... There were hundreds of other healthy carriers identified all over New York, and some of them were cooks. What? Most, really? Hilarious. Mostly men, by the way. And, and they were cooking? Well, they were barred from cooking, but not all of them always listened. Huh. And yet Mary was the only one who they isolated in this way. Why? Why only her? I think it was more about making people feel safe than actually making them safe. Oh, look out for this stair. It's all crumbled. She was what we needed at the time. We're in the hospital where the tuberculosis patients were quarantined. This was towards the end of Lynn and my visit to the island. Yeah, these must be the wards. Definitely. Yeah.
10: So when was she here?
7: This is where they brought her after she had a stroke. And this is where she was for the last six years of her life.
10: Did she die in here?
11: Yeah.
3: Hi, this is David Rosner. This
8: is Judy Levitt. Reading
3: this message. Radiolab is funded in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation.
8: Enhancing public understanding of science and technology.
0: Science and technology in the modern world.
8: More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org.
0: Radiolab is produced
3: by WNYC and distributed by NPR.
8: Okay, that's it. Thanks. Bye. WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as
1: a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com.
3: On Notes from America, we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be. Each week we talk about race, our politics, education, relationships, usually all of them because everything's connected. And you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krolwich. This is Radio Lab, and today it's Patient Zero. That's our subject. Yeah,
3: and and this next story—it's well, so huge. It's the ultimate Patient Zero story, really. Many of us have lived through this. It was—it's as recent an event. It's—it's it's such a recent event that it still hurts and it still bleeds. Yeah. And in it somewhere is, a, literally, the the patient that is called Zero. So this is.
1: Yeah. A lot of people are going to help us tell this story, but starting us off is science writer, Radiolab regular, Carl Zimmer. So
12: in 1981, doctors for the first time describe
6: a mysterious newly discovered disease, a
3: syndrome, which affects mostly homosexual men.
12: The young man in Los Angeles We're dying. The number of cases has been growing faster and faster. So far, more than 80 Americans have died. 258 people have died. 625 people have died.
1: Of course, this is the part we all know, how, from those first few cases in L.A., AIDS became one of the deadliest pandemics the world has ever seen.
11: More dangerous than the plague of the Middle Ages.
1: But back at the beginning, there was a story that I've not been able to shake for the last 30 years, and it's a story that I want to reimagine right now
9: right after news of this syndrome started to break. that science writer David Quammen,
1: who along with Carl will be one of our guides.
12: Epidemiologists were trying to figure out where... Where did it come from? And they were th- thinking, like, well, maybe it's a sexually transmitted
9: disease. So the CDC launches a study of a group of about thirty patients, gay men, in New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, to see who had had sexual contact with whom. How do you, you is that just a series of interviews with
12: people? Yeah, please name all the people that you that you've slept with.
1: The CDC eventually releases the results of this survey in the form of a diagram, like a network drawing with circles representing patients
9: and then lines representing sexual contact. And each patient, each little circle, was numbered. New York, seven. Los Angeles, 12. So you didn't know who was who, but you could tell immediately
1: when you look at this thing that of all the 30 or so circles, there was one circle that was special. It had lines coming out in every direction. Seven or eight emanating from him. Like the hub of a wheel. Except all the spokes on this wheel connected to other wheels, which then shot out and connected to other wheels, fanning outward. And at the center of it all was that one little circle, numbered... Zero. Number zero. As far as we know, that was the first time that you ever get the term patient zero.
3: Patient zero was a man, a central victim and victimizer.
1: This is from a 60 Minutes special in 1988. That year, a reporter named Randy Schultz had written a book called And the Band Played On that, for the first time, revealed the identity of Patient Zero.
8: He was a French Canadian. A very handsome airline steward. Named Gaetan Dugas.
1: Gaetan Dugas.
8: Patient Zero.
1: A few minutes later, in the report, Schultz comes on to describe a guy
11: who has got unlimited sexual stamina.
1: This sexual athlete who would fly from one hot spot to the next because of his job, having sex with literally thousands of men.
9: And as he knew he was dying, at least according to Randy Schultz, he became somewhat sinister and malicious. He would sleep with a male partner at a bathhouse in San Francisco or somewhere else. And then when the light came up, according to Randy Schultz, he would say, I've got gay cancer. Now
8: you're going to get it too. You talk to him. I talk to him yeah.
1: This is Dr. Selma Dritz. She was part of that CDC study.
8: I told him that he was getting other people sick with it. And he said, my right to do whatever I want, my civil rights, I do as I please. I've got it. Why shouldn't they have it? They said, you can kill yourself if you want, but you've got no right to take somebody else along with you. And he said, screw you, and walked out.
9: Really a chilling moment.
1: And pretty much from that moment on, Gaetan Dugas...
12: He just took on this, this aura as, as single-handedly causing a, uh, an epidemic in the United States. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, I don't know about you, but I first bumped into this story in the movie version of In the Band played on. My
2: friend, we're talking about thousands of men whose faces I cannot even remember, and you want names.
1: That's an actor playing Gaetan Dugas in the movie. Now, when I first saw that, AIDS had already infected two and a half million people, and to think that it could
12: all go back to this one guy just seemed unreal. It was a, it was a very uh, potent story, there's no doubt. And, and he gave HIV to a lot of people. There's no question about that. But what we do know is that he was not patient zero.
9: He was not patient zero. No. He was not the beginning point.
12: He wasn't. Not even close. Huh.
1: So here's the question that got me started on the story. Okay, so The Gay Steward, that was the movie stuck in my head. But what's the real movie? What movie can we make about the beginning of the AIDS epidemic? Because when you've got something so vast that, according to some estimates, will have killed 60 million people by the end of the decade, you need a beginning. You need some way of explaining how this disaster happened and how it might happen again.
3: And how... Exactly, do we know that Gayton Duga wasn't patient zero?
12: Well, um, there are a couple reasons we know it. so, um, so one thing that people started to do scientists was to um they went started going back and looking at people who
9: had died. people who died mysteriously AIDS- like things in the past might some of them have been early cases.
12: and they started finding,
9: a lot.
5: Robert Rayford had AIDS 12 years before it was recognized in this country in 1959, a sailor in Britain died of pneumocystis pneumonia.
1: And so, for in a 90- while, you had all these new patient zeros. In
5: 1961, a nurse in Chicago died of Kappa C. sarcoma.
12: But and the real definitive blow to this whole patient zero nonsense came by actually looking at the virus itself. In
1: 1984, same year that Gayton Dugas died, scientists isolate the virus. HIV. Which is really just a little string of genetic code that gets into your body and into your
9: cells and uses your cells to make copies of itself. But here's the thing. When it replicates within a single patient, it copies itself um, imprecisely. It mutates quickly. It changes
1: a lot. As the virus duplicates itself inside a person, the dupes often have little copying errors in them, little mutations. And it turns out those errors... They happen at a predictable rate. You can kind of almost predict how many you're going to see in a year or five years. And so the amount of changes that you see out there, the diversity, really, of the viruses in the AIDS population, well, that becomes really good information.
9: And so a group of scientists began to look at the amount of diversity among HIV patients in the U.S. And
12: other parts of the world.
3: And the more diversity, the longer the virus has been around. Right,
12: right. And they could use that kind of like a clock. If you have a virus here and a virus there...
1: You could measure how different they are, and you would know that it would take a certain amount of time for them to get that different. And to make a long story short... The picture they get is... That AIDS entered the United States...
12: Around 1966...
1: At a
9: time when Gaten Ga was
1: still a virginal adolescent. From there, scientists were able to trace the virus back to Haiti, and from Haiti, back to Africa.
12: It's been there the longest. It's had the longest time to become diverse, to mutate, to evolve. So if you want to really, if you want to get the, to the real patient zero, as it were, the most interesting stuff come, actually comes from Africa. So one way to try to figure out its origins there is to go looking for the virus.
9: Yep. And that takes us back to ZR59 and DRC60. Can we talk about them? Sure. What? These are the two earliest known HIV-positive human specimens. And this is where, for me at least, the story gets way bigger than I imagined. Now, the first
1: sample... ZR-59... ...came to light in the late 90s. Somehow, scientists unearthed a very old tube of blood from a hospital in Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of
9: Congo. And when they tested it... It had HIV. This had been taken from a Bantu man in 1959...
3: 1959. Yeah,
9: nobody knows his name. Nobody even knows, I think, what he died of. And that was the only one for a number of years. That was our one glimpse into the kind of deep history of HIV. But then
1: along comes that guy, Michael Warby. He's an evolutionary biologist at the University of Arizona. And a few years ago, Michael went back to Kinshasa and found a second HIV sample. He actually found the virus lurking in a tiny bit of human tissue that was preserved in paraffin wax.
7: It's kind of like... uh, Han Solo in, uh, in the Star Wars movie when he's kind of frozen in, in that carbonite or whatever that stuff is. In this new sample, it was
1: from the same town, Kinshasa as the first, and also, more importantly, from the same time. 1960. And with the two of them, then you can kind of go back in time. Like we described before, you can measure the differences between the samples, calculate how long it would take for those samples to get that different. And in the end... You can use these two samples to wind the clock all the way back to the virus that
9: started it all. And it turned out, the most recent common ancestor of those two specimens goes back to, to about 1908.
1: 1908, that is when it started in human beings. What,
12: 1908, is that what
1: you said? Roughly.
9: Give or take a margin of error.
12: Early 1900s. Wow.
1: So around 1908, give or take, Something happened. That's
9: right. That moment is the spillover. Spillover. Spillover is the term the scientists use to describe the moment when a virus in one species passes into another species.
12: You know, new diseases in humans tend to pop up from animals. So people said, okay, flu comes from birds, where does HIV come from? To get at that answer, you have to look beyond human beings. You have to look at other viruses that are like HIV. So the search was on.
5: The inability to find a similar disease in research animals.
1: Turns out right about the time that the HIV virus was discovered,
5: scientists at the
1: New
3: England Primate Research Center...
1: Some researchers found a virus like it in macaque monkeys. In fact, it was so similar that they called it... SIV simian immunodeficiency virus.
10: Yes, and that's where the origin quest started.
1: This is Beatrice Hahn.
10: I'm a professor of medicine and microbiology at the University of Pennsylvania.
1: And so after they found it in macaques, what happened?
10: Um, it took a couple of years.
1: But eventually, she says, they found SIV.
10: And still another primate species, the Sudi mangabey,
1: And then in a few more.
10: The African green monkeys, mandrills.
1: Pretty soon it was all over the place.
10: There are now, I think, 40 different species of African monkeys known to have their own version of SIV.
1: So then the question was, which one of these monkeys, or primates, passed it to us?
10: Then, unexpectedly,
1: a researcher
9: named Martine
10: Martine Peters
9: at this center in Gabon, Gabon decided to test her
10: chimps two orphan chimpanzees and
9: bingo. She found a very, very close match. A
10: virus that was the closest relative of HIV-1. So? Everybody said, well, you know...
9: It was a chimp. It was a chimp. Okay. Yeah, it came from a chimp. Yes. But then the question was, well, which chimps? Or rather, where? Where exactly? So? Beatrice Hahn and her colleagues started looking at chimps that came from different parts of Western Central Africa. Now, getting blood samples from chimps in the wild is
10: pretty much... It just isn't feasible.
9: You know, because
1: in the wild they hide the moment they see us. So you you get stuck with fecal samples. It's
12: poop. Huh. <laughs> yes. There's lots of DNA in there. And viruses. So they would just go to where the chimpanzees would sleep at night, and they would just, you know, collect some poop.
1: Bring it back to the lab, and Beatrice would analyze all the viruses.
10: Over 90 different wild communities. From
1: every part of Central Africa.
10: Over 7,000 different fecal samples.
1: And slowly, they were able to piece together
10: which communities were infected and which ones had the closest to HIV-1. That's when it hit us for the first time.
1: What exactly hit you?
10: the geographic origin of these chimps.
1: In 2006, her and her colleagues published that the human AIDS virus comes from a group of chimps, a very specific group that live in a very specific place. This little corner of southeastern Cameroon.
10: Between the Bumba River, the Ngoka River, and the Sanga River.
9: These chimps were
1: essentially penned in
9: between these three rivers. It's an area probably only of 100 square miles, not much more than that.
3: Wow. So when we're looking at what humans have and we're looking at what all of those chimps in Africa have the most perfect match is this little territory up there in Cameroon. Yeah.
10: There is no other virus that is any closer. So that's that.
1: So can you reconstruct the spillover and the who
9: that it spilled over into as be, you know as best as you can we understand you it? You can hypothesize. And the best hypothesis is the cut hunter. Hypothesis: The cut hunter. The C U T hunter. That's right. A hunter who gets cut.
1: And what can we say about this guy? I mean, is he? What do we know about him?
9: If we had to guess, if we had to guess, that human was probably a Bantu man living very near the forest or in the forest in southeastern Cameroon. He was hunting. Maybe he had a bow and arrow. Maybe he had a spear, and uh, he kills a chimpanzee. Bingo, here's a big pile of meat, and he starts to butcher it. He's cutting open the chest cavity, he's pulling out organs, and he cuts himself. And he gets blood-to-blood contact. Chimpanzee blood against his blood. What happens is that the virus in the chimpanzee blood found itself in an environment that was unexpected, that was alien to it, but was not Too much different from the biochemical environment it had been in, chimpanzee blood, it could function. And that's the moment. That's the moment it begins. That human is patient zero.
1: But why then? Why 1908? I mean, presumably people have been hunting chimps for a really long time. Why wouldn't this guy be patient 7 million?
9: That's another of the big questions. People certainly in, in Central Africa have been eating monkeys for thousands of years. I mean, David says there's really no way to know, but this could have just been the right virus. Maybe this particular virus evolved in a way that made it more transmissible in humans. Or maybe it just got lucky to come along
1: at precisely the right time.
12: What you're looking at...
1: This is Carl again.
12: ...is uh, a time when this part of Africa was being heavily colonized. The French and the Belgians were building train systems. The populations were on the move. Kinshasa, which was then Leopoldville, it was exploding,
9: it was huge. The cities were attracting people from the boonies in those days. So by 1908, all the
1: virus has to do is get from that tiny village where the Cut Hunter lived to one of the
9: new cities. That happens almost certainly by river. I was stirred by the work of Beatrice Hahn and Mike Warby to see what this scenario looked like on the ground. So I went to Southeastern Cameroon, and I chartered a little boat, about a 30-foot wooden boat with an outboard motor. And he traced the path of the virus. We went down the Ngoko River, and we stopped at a few villages. There are a couple little villages there, one of which has a market where you can buy um, monkey meat and crocodile meat. And he says it
1: wasn't hard to imagine how it all might have went down. Perhaps the cut hunter gave the virus to a woman, who then passed it on to a fisherman. fellow that I call the Voyager. Who then got in a boat, as David did,
9: and carried it down the river. The Sanga River, which is the... The, the Ngoko is a tributary of the Sanga. Sanga becomes a bigger river, 200 meters wide, which then flows to the Congo River, the big river. And into the city. And I imagine him sliding into Brazzaville, around 1920, the first HIV-positive man to arrive in an urban center, where there's a much greater density of humans, where there are prostitutes, a greater fluidity of social and sexual interactions. Um, And that seems to have been the place from which the disease went global.
3: So that's how it happened.
1: We could take it back even farther, actually. What do you mean? Because if you want to make a movie about the start of it, well, this is not the start. Because we got it from chimps, right? Right. So you could ask, who was Chimp Zero?
9: What do we know about Chimp Zero? Right? Yeah. I mean, everything comes from somewhere. And again, by molecular work, Scientists have ab- been able to determine that the chimp virus is actually—it actually comes from two monkey viruses, two
3: different monkeys from two completely different species. What would they have encountered each other somewhere, or had a fight? Or? Uh, uh,
9: they probably encountered each other in the stomach of a chimp. Meaning what? Well,
1: from the perspective of a chimpanzee, monkeys—they look tasty. This is Nathan Wolf, professor in human biology at Stanford University. And he says to fully understand this part of the patient, or rather, chimp zero narrative, you have to grasp how it is that chimps hunt. And this is something he witnessed. In the Kabali National Forest in, in southwestern Uganda. He described to us watching three male chimps converge on a tree full of colobus monkeys, which are these very small black-and-white monkeys. And
12: one individual managed to
1: grab two juveniles, and then the three individuals all met up and... ...began to eat the monkey while it was still alive. The chimpanzee was going after uh, an organ, you know, that, that obviously was a, a tasty morsel that, that he was going after, and, and the monkey was, uh, was screaming bloody murder. It is quite disturbing to watch, he says. But one of the things that struck me at that moment was the depth of contact between the blood and body fluids of this monkey and the chimpanzee. The chimps are literally covered in blood. They have blood on their face and in their eyes. And from the virus's perspective, this is spillover heaven. Okay, so the following is the closest that we can get to a zero point in this entire narrative. We don't know where it happened. And we don't know exactly the time, say, some hundreds of thousands of years ago. From the molecular clock, we know it was less than a million years. That's all we know. But whenever it was, Chimp Zero was hunting, and it comes upon a monkey called a red-cap mangabe. The, the red-cap bee, this is a, a larger primate. And these are tree-dwelling little little guys? Tree-dwelling. A Little bit of red fur on their heads. Yes. Chimp Zero spots one of these monkeys, eats it. And in the process, he catches a red-capped Mangabe version of the AIDS virus. Next, sometime after that first kill, weeks, months, we don't know, maybe it was the same day, Chimp Zero comes across another monkey. And this monkey was called a spot-nosed gwenin. Yes. It's got a spot on its nose, I assume. There you go. Very small. One of the tiniest monkeys of all of the old World monkeys. And Chimp Zero eats that monkey and gets a spot-nosed guenon version of the AIDS virus, or the SIV virus, inside it. So you've got the red-cap mangabe, and you've got the the spot-nosed guenon. So you've got a guenon and a mangabe. Two completely different kinds of SIV viruses inside the same chimp. Now, under normal circumstances, according to Nathan, both of these SIV viruses would go nowhere. Because when one of these viruses makes the jump, they go from a place they've adapted to, and that they know, to a completely foreign landscape. Uh, Like a human being dropped off on Mars, maybe without a spacesuit. I mean, they basically are entering a completely alien habitat. The cells don't look the same. The environment is different. And the chimp's immune system would normally kill them. But then once in a blue moon, something crazy happens. These two viruses will end up inside the same cell in the same chimp at the same time. Literally, there is a single cell simultaneously infected with both viruses. So suppose on one side of the cell you've got the Mangabee virus. And on the other side of the same cell, you've got the spot-nose-guenin virus. And what happens is, uh, literally, inside the cell, you have an enzyme, it's called the polymerase enzyme, that's copying genetic information of the viruses. This is what viruses do. They hijack these enzymes to make copies of themselves. Now, here's the problem. These, these enzymes, they're not necessarily that sticky. And while they're in the process of copying one virus, every once in a while, they'll accidentally fall off mid-copy and go whack and latch on to the second virus and just keep on copying. And so what it ends up spitting out is a hybrid. Like that. Now, this new mosaic probably won't go anywhere because 99.9999999% of the time, when these hybrids happen, it's a dead end. The chimps' immune system is pretty sophisticated. It has evolved defenses against these viruses, and it will destroy them. But again, once in a blue moon. So this is a blue moon after a blue moon after a blue moon to really get this. Finally, you get one particular mosaic virus between the mangabe and the guenon, that through sheer random luck works. It landed on the exact right combination of genes that allowed it to evade the chimps' immune system. I mean, one of the amazing things to think about is how many, how many hopeful monsters you had to have in order to get that one yeah. that actually survived. Probably trillions. But then, boom. boom. Suddenly, in a flash, from these two viruses that can barely survive in the chimp. You get a new virus. A little bit Mangabee, a little bit guinean can not only survive in the chimp, but can thrive. In fact, for this baby virus, the chimp is the perfect host. And that was the virus that ended up spreading, jumping over into humans, and has been this massive and incredibly dramatic sort of tear in the fabric of humanity.
9: Let me add another parenthesis. There are essentially 12 major groups of the HIV virus.
1: What David means is that 12 different kinds of HIV viruses have spilled over
9: 12 different times. Eight of them came from monkeys, three of them came from chimps, and one came from gorillas. Wow. And of those 12, only one of them is responsible for the global pandemic. There are 12 kinds. 12 times that we know about It's probably happened dozens and dozens more times that we don't know about. So the spillover is not a highly improbable event. These sorts of viruses, they're constantly pinging at us. They're pinging at us and pinging at us. We see it happening
1: all the time. You see it happening? All the time. Nathan has set up a series of monitoring stations in places like Central Africa. And he and his colleagues have been tracking what he calls the viral chatter in the people who hunt these primates. We collected specimens from the animals that they were hunting. They compared that to blood samples from the hunters themselves. And guess what? We found a whole range of new retroviruses that were moving over into these hunters. For example, he's been tracking something called the simian foamy virus, which is... Virus in the same family as HIV. And he has seen it hop from an individual gorilla to an individual human who killed that gorilla. Yeah, these are almost certainly what we call primary transmission events. Oh, so you really are looking at the potential beginning of something yes I mean, who knows so what? if you want a patient zero yeah. really clear patient zero uh, it's some of these individuals that have been infected with these viruses and the real question is how do we stop patient zeros how do, how do we avoid patient, patient patient one and patient two exactly so Nathan is developing a series of tools like digital surveillance I mean some of these places uh, I work in some places in Democratic Republic of Congo. You basically have to fly in to get there. No roads, often no electricity, but... Many of these places, they still have cell phone towers. So Nathan has begun to track cell phone call patterns in these communities. So if he sees a blip of many calls to a medical center within a short period of time... Okay, boom, now we've got to investigate that. And We continue to find viruses that are completely novel and we're looking to determine if these, are, if these are the next HIV. Because think about it, he says, HIV landed in humans in 1908, but we didn't know about it until 1981. We had decades of time when this was a virus before it spread globally. What if we'd been looking for it? A lot of people to thank for this segment.
3: Thanks to Nathan Wolf. For being Nathan. (laughs) And he has an awesome new book called The Viral Storm. Also, thank you to Carl Zimmer, whose book on viruses is called A Planet of Viruses. And thank you also to him and to Michael Warby, Uh, Their interview was recorded on a podcast from Meet the Scientist, which you can find at microbeworld.org. And thanks
1: to David Quammen, who's got a book called Spillover coming out very soon, which is all about diseases crossing over from animals to us. And also to Beatrice Hahn of the University of Pennsylvania. And to Katie Slocum from the University of York for letting us use her recordings of chimpanzees.
11: Hey, this is Soren Wheeler, uh, senior editor and producer at Radiolab, uh, with a quick update. Um, so David Quammen's book, Spillover, has been out for a couple of years now. And as we all know, we are actually now at this moment facing the tragic consequences of another spillover. This time it's the Ebola virus. And we found ourselves wondering just how far it's going to spill.
9: Okay. All right. Okay.
11: So Robert and I called up David Quammen again. He had actually just reprinted with updates the chapter about
9: Ebola from his book. Yeah, Ebola, the natural and human history of a deadly virus.
3: First of all, how old is this disease? Does anyone have any idea?
9: Well, as a human disease, as far as we know, it dates to 1976. There was this outbreak of a strange disease at the Yambuku Mission in northern Zaire.
11: 318 cases 280 people die.
9: And then there was another one in Sudan at about the same time.
11: This time, 151 people die, and then it just disappears. Hiding in the forest. Without a trace. Until 1994, 1994, thousands of miles away in Gabon, another outbreak.
9: Yes, that's that's the history since 1976. It disappears for for two or three years at a time sometimes it disappears for a decade and then it spills over and causes a human outbreak
3: well if i guess if something is in the closet and is going to jump out at you then the natural question to ask is where's the closet like where is it hiding
9: uh well the the main suspects are bats we don't know that for sure because nobody has ever isolated live Ebola virus from an African bat. Have they tried? Have they looked in
3: lots and lots of bats?
9: Yeah, they've looked in lots. They've looked in all kinds of animals. They've looked in insects. They've looked in snakes. They've looked in forest antelopes. They've looked in monkeys. They looked in plants. Literally hundreds of different species they looked in. Found zero traces of live Ebola virus.
11: So we really don't know where it's coming from or where it might come from next. No.
9: Hmm.
11: No.
3: Can I just... uh, Ask you just to describe the Ebola virus. It's uh, it's apparently uh, viruses are generally teeny. Is this a teeny 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 one?
9: Yes, yeah, it's a teeny virus. It belongs to a family they call the filoviruses, filo uh-huh. as in thread. It's a it's a spaghetti shaped virus. Its genome is carried on just one strand of the the genetic material RNA. And
11: while those genes have let the virus live happily for hundreds of thousands, even millions of years in bats or whatever animal it lives in, when it gets into humans, Ebola burns too hot. It makes so many copies of itself so quickly that it just destroys the body and the person is usually dead within a few weeks, which David says is actually bad for the virus. Because Ebola can only pass through direct contact with bodily fluids and because it kills so quickly, it doesn't have a lot of opportunities to get into
9: the next person. So the scientists have a term for that too. They call, at least they used to call us, a dead end host. How's that for a phrase? We're the dead end host of Ebola, and that means that when Ebola gets into us, it has no great future. It's either going to burn out and come to an end, or we're going to stop it. Uh, but right now, we don't seem like a dead end host.
11: Yeah, I, 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 I'm wondering, like, you know, if we've, if since we've started noticing in 1976, a, a burst here, a burst there why, why now this? Why is it? That's
9: the big question for Ebola 2014. This time, we've got a very different situation. It's gotten out of control. Why has it gotten out of control? Well, partly because we recognized it late. It began back in December of 2013 with a two-year-old boy in southeastern Guinea. At least he's the first known case at this point. He died His mother died about a week later, his sister died, his grandmother died, other people in the village died. This went on from early December until the middle of
11: March. By then it had spread from these small villages into larger cities, in part, David says, because while previous outbreaks had been in very remote places, it now
9: found itself in a more densely populated area. The capital cities in these small West African countries are not very many miles away from the Villages of the countryside, And then the virus got into these poor neighborhoods like West Point, uh, where people were living together in in crowded slum-like neighborhoods, and uh, and when their loved ones got sick, uh, people took care of them, and when their loved ones died, people cleaned the bodies and and touched the bodies and said goodbye to them. So the infection spread, and of course those those dense, poor neighborhoods in the capital cities are not that far from the international airports. So suddenly you've got the opportunity for the, almost the first time for Ebola to get on an airplane.
11: So if you... if is Have people changed
9: the way they think about Ebola? Because, I mean, is, is there a mood shift there? There's a little bit of a mood shift, but the, the experts, the scientists, the public health officials are still saying, this is not that kind of virus. It still is... As far as we know, a virus that is only transmissible by direct contact with bodily fluids. It should be easy to stop, easy to contain. But according to David, the thing that some scientists
11: are worried about is that as Ebola gets into more and more people and makes more and more copies of itself, it's changing.
9: Yes. Every time it replicates, there is a chance of a
11: mistake. There's a chance that the genes for the next virus will come out just a little bit different. It'll...
9: Mutate. Most mutations are either insignificant or they do damage. But occasionally there can be a mutation that might possibly help the virus. Can we track these things? Like, Can we we take a person who's got sick
3: of Ebola in Sudan and compare it to a person who's sick of Ebola in the Congo and compare that to a person who's sick of Ebola in Niger or in wherever? Can we do that and see whether it's changing?
9: Yes. And it has been done. Stephen Geyer, And his colleagues published a paper in Science in early September, which involved doing exactly that.
11: And one of the things they found, says David, is that since this virus has been in us during this outbreak, it's been changing twice as fast as it has previously when it's living in its animal hiding place.
9: Yeah. So it has had more opportunities to replicate in more different people. It hasn't just been in 300 people. It's been in 9,000 people now.
11: Is that the key word?
3: Is that the more opportunities you have to have a... Good mutation from your point of view, that that this is suddenly, this disease has gotten an
11: enormous number of opportunities?
9: That is the operative word, yeah. Mm -hmm. Are there boundaries
11: around that? I mean, like, do we have any sense of how big a leap it would be for this to suddenly be transmissible in the air?
9: Yeah. We know that for this to spread through the air, uh, there are very special machinery, you know, uh, grappling hooks, proteins on the outside of. A virus that help it catch hold of particular cells and enter them, and Ebola doesn't have the right grappling hooks to lay hold of cells in the respiratory tract and get in them, and then come bursting out of them and be carried outward on your breath. To get to that point would require a number of mutations, each of which is infinitesimally unlikely. And when you multiply, is
3: that a mutation that it would be startling, like a what to a what?
9: What Yeah, some people have been saying that. uh, It would be like mutations that allowed a giraffe to fly. (laughs) But there are other scenarios that are a little more probable. Uh, For instance, it might uh, mutate and adapt in such a way that it kills fewer people or kills them more slowly and leaves people infectious for a longer period of time. Maybe people are walking around uh, for three or four weeks with an occasional vomiting episode, but they're not dying. That would potentially give Ebola a greater opportunity to spread among more people.
11: What, (laughs) this is not a fair question to ask you, but what should we be doing?
9: I think the most important thing we should be doing is not letting the public health versus civil, civil liberties issues in the U.S. distract us from West Africa. As the case count gets, we've talked about this, as the case count gets higher, it has more opportunities to mutate and therefore more opportunities to adapt. So we need to end this outbreak in West Africa before this virus learns too much about us.
11: Thanks again to David Quammen. His book uh, is Ebola, the Natural and Human History of a Deadly Virus. We'll be back in just a moment.
5: My name is Brennan Novak, and I'm calling from Reykjavik, Iceland, where about half the country believes in elves. Radiolab is supported in part by the National Science Foundation and by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world.
6: Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank.
1: Hey, you want to know about one of my proudest moments of being a dad? Yeah. Happened this morning? Yeah. So you know how Emil's a little bit of an introvert, right? Mm -hmm. We're sort of worried whether he socializes enough. Well, we were taking him to daycare and uh, we're get, he's taking his shoes off, and there's this little boy who's only there two days a week, and he's not adjusting well, and every time his mother drops him off, she has to literally like, pry him off her, and he's wailing, and, you know. and so Emil sits down on this little seat to take his shoes off. The mother of this kid puts this little boy next to Emil, and he is just crying. <clears throat> he's just distraught. So then what happens is Emil turns to this little boy, looks at him, sticks out his hand, and says, high five.
4: (laughs) High five. <laughs> out of nowhere. That is amazing. Yeah, cuz it's like they're they're out in their own society, you know, yeah, like totally. the, yeah.
1: Okay, so let's do the introductions. Um I'm Jad. I'm Robert. This is Radio Lab. We're calling this show Patient 0. Yeah. And for this next segment, no more patients, no, no more, more diseases. diseases. Exactly.
3: Let's focus instead on invention, on the people who bring new ideas into the world.
1: Yeah, the zero is behind the ideas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't quite sound right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And and that guy you just heard? Hi,
4: my name is John Moalem. I'm a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine. He's got his own high five
1: story to tell, though it's not about his daughter. We have, I think, we have kids around the same age. It's or like, her first high five. It's actually about the first high five ever. Yeah. Ever? Yeah. See, one morning a few years ago. 2007 or 2008. John turned on his
4: computer, opened up his email, and found... A press release about the, the true, undisputed inventor of the High Five coming you know, out you finally. Who was the
1: press release from?
4: National High Five Day, which is a kind of a joke holiday <laughs> that was invented by a group of high school friends, I think.
3: So, And, and they told the story?
4: They told the story of Lamont Sleets college basketball player at Murray State in Kentucky.
3: And the story in the press release went
4: something like this. Sleets' father fought in Vietnam as part of the 1st Battalion, 5th Infantry, which was nicknamed the Five. And they used to greet each other by holding up their hand and saying, Five, as a kind of prideful thing. And when Lamont was younger, they would all sort of hang out at the house in Kentucky, and he couldn't keep all their names straight. So when they'd walk in the door and go, Five, he would just sort of smack their hand. And he'd go high five. Oh, like high, like hello five. Hello five, yeah. Ah. High comma five. You know, he has small hands. He likes to put them up against the big hands of the five guys. And it was years later that he started playing college basketball at Murray State and started high fiving all his teammates. He really never stopped high fiving. It was just something he did. But when he went around playing away games, other teams picked it up, and it sort of spread out. So. He was sort of both the inventor of the high five and the kind of Johnny Appleseed of the high five at the same time.
1: And within a few weeks of John getting this press release, the story was everywhere. Went kind of viral. It wound
4: up sort of all over the internet. There were some local newspapers who you know, picked it up. You know, Murray State suddenly became very proud of the fact that they were the, the home of the high five. It became mm-hmm. sort of part of the institutional lore in the athletic department there.
1: And then you read this
4: and you thought what? Uh, I thought, uh, how sad. How sad? Uh, Why be- how sad?
1: Because I knew the story of Glenn Burke. Turns out John had already been poking around into this question of who invented the high five, and he had stumbled on this photograph. You know what, maybe I, I
4: don't have it. but uh...
1: Black and white picture. Oh yeah, here we go. Here Two go. baseball players facing each other, afros, huge smiles. And their hands are in the air right about to connect.
4: Which one of these is Glenn Burke? So Burke's, Burke's the guy in the warm-up jacket. I think he's even got his hat on backwards.
1: Glenn Burke was a center fielder for the L.A. Dodgers in the 70s. Big
4: guy. He says he had 17-inch biceps, so I'll take his I'll take his
1: word for that. The other guy in the picture um, is Dusty Baker. He's an outfielder. Memoir, but you yeah. can tell in the picture, so, just from the way that Glenn is sort of throwing his whole body forward, that he's the one initiating the gesture.
3: I mean,
4: this is a guy who was, um, you know, the soul of the Dodgers clubhouse.
0: He just had that type of um, charisma.
3: This is Luther Burke Davis, Glenn's sister.
0: With Glenn, it was like... Mm, like he'd always be on the stage. Often said he should have been a comedian.
4: He was always dancing around in the in the clubhouse. He he used to do uh, Richard Pryor stand up routines just from memory.
0: <laughs> he just genuinely loved people
3: so much. So she says that in the year that picture was taken, the Dodgers made him the the sort of public face of the team.
0: He was their ambassador of goodwill.
3: He's the guy they'd say that to all the press events.
4: You
0: know, like meet the youngsters or people, yeah, that sort of you thing. Know, and
3: stuff.
4: Here's the story about this picture. What was the date? October 5th, poetically enough, 1977.
1: It's the playoffs, Dodgers versus the Phillies, Uh, game four, bases are
4: loaded. Dusty Baker steps to the plate and (laughs) grand slam. Crowd goes nuts. Baker does his victory lap. and just disease. You know, round and third coming to the plate. Burke comes racing out of the dugout. And he's got his arm really high up and Baker sees him instinctively raises his arm. And before you know it, Burke and Baker smack hands. Bam! There it was.
0: The sportscasters that were, you know, announcing the game said they had never seen that done in sports before.
4: And from there on, the Dodgers started high-fiving and everyone else started high-fiving. The high-five. Became
0: a thing. Mm Mm-hmm.
3: And it all began
1: with that one moment. The platonic high-five
4: right there.
3: Unfortunately, that moment?
4: That was actually both the beginning and, and also almost the end of Burke's career. It's not that he wasn't good. He was actually really good, even in his rookie season. He was being talked about as the next Willie Mays by the Dodgers organization. But Uh, he was gay. And he tried to keep that a secret while he was playing. Uh, Dusty Baker actually had kept trying to set him up with his wife's cousins, and uh, Burke never wa- you know, never liked any of them, and Baker oh. was completely confused because he knew you know, these, these were really good-looking women, apparently. <laughs> so there were rumors circulating, and the rumors reached the front office of, of the, the L.A. Dodgers, and, and one day, Burke was called in by management, and they offered him $75,000, to get married.
1: What? 75000 To get married? Huh. What is this, like the mob or something? Well, what?
4: exactly. I mean, no, they didn't regularly offer their players money to get, to get married. And, and Burke's response uh, apparently was, uh, he said, I suppose you mean to a woman. <laughs> huh. Shortly after that, the Dodgers traded into the Oakland days for a player who everyone acknowledged was completely inferior.
0: That was confusing for us, and I know it had to be confusing for him.
4: It was shocking to everyone. No one understood why he mm-hmm. was traded. And you think it was because he was gay? Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, baseball, this all-American sport. Yeah. But, you know, at least he was still going to be able to play ball. Yeah. Or at least he thought.
4: He ends up in Oakland, doesn't get very much playing time. And when he did get on the field,
3: it wasn't very pleasant.
4: He
0: used to get heckled a lot, you know, from people in the bleachers. And the-
3: and even worse, according to a couple of different people, his coach... Billy Martin. ...would often introduce Glenn Burke this way.
0: This is Glenn Burke, the faggot. Really? Yeah.
3: And uh, so Glenn
4: Burke retires.
1: Wow, and he was only like 26 or something, right?
0: Yes, he was young.
4: Within a year of his rookie season, Hmm. just walks away. God, that's like an aborted career. Exactly. From there, he ends up in uh, the Castro district in San Francisco, which is the big gay neighborhood.
3: And
1: things go okay for a while.
3: But then one day when he's crossing the street,
0: three teenage girls in their mother's car
1: come barreling down the road.
0: And um, they hit him and broke his leg in three places. Oh, man. And that kind of ended everything when that happened.
3: He starts taking painkillers. One thing leads to another.
4: He gets hooked on crack, can't hold a job, he goes broke. Ends up living... On the streets. And uh, in 1994, Burke uh, is diagnosed with, with HIV or AIDS, I guess AIDS at that point.
0: He ended up coming to live with me. A lot of times he didn't sleep well at night. And we would sit up and talk. Put on music and I'd dance and he'd move his arms around because he was in the bed. <laughs> hmm. He was bedridden.
1: And so you took care of him till he died?
0: Yeah.
3: Glenbrook died in nineteen ninety five. But what he's left with out at this point, is he's left with the original high five, right? That's his claim.
4: Yes, yes. That defined him to some people, at least. At at the end, and he and he believed it. A reporter had asked him, you know, if it was true about the high five, and and he he said, yeah. Th- think about the feeling you get when you give someone the high five. I had that feeling before everybody else did.
0: Huh.
1: So what did you do when you got this press release?
4: So I called National High Five Day. Because I wanted to talk to Lamont Sleets. even though I was sad, uh, it seemed like okay. Here's another person's prideful
1: accomplishment. Um, let's get his story.
4: Hello, hello. Eventually,
2: hey, there we go. He
1: gets this guy on the phone. Uh, my name is Greg Edge. Greg is one of the founders, Hi. and he and John get to talking. And John asks him the sensible first question: Is the Lamont Sleet story true?
3: He figured it was, but you know, he th- thought he should at least ask. He's a reporter.
4: And there was a pause,
2: and he said, No. Frankly. We've been waiting for someone to ask. We thought no one would ever ask. It's not true. This is something that we had made up. We wanted to see if the media would would run with it. They made the whole thing up. They made the whole thing up, and then they just went to go cast their protagonist. Yeah, so we sat down, we picked uh, Murray State. That's just kind of a great-sounding school. It pops up in the NCAA tournament every few years.
4: And they came across this guy, Lamont Sleets. Why him? They,
2: well... It was pretty close to random.
4: They then told me they had received an email from Lamont Sleets'
2: wife. Absolutely. His wife emailed us and said, some of the details that you have are are flat out wrong.
4: (laughs) That implies that some of the things you've said are right, though. But Lamont thinks he probably did invent the high five.
0: Wait, 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 wait. wait. What about Glenn? I was kind of like, hmm, kind of a bit blown away, you know?
4: Yeah. You know, here was this guy who was proud of this, and these guys just kind of stripped it away from him.
1: Do you feel a little guilty? Did I mean like okay, um, it's a high five. It's kind of a silly thing. On the other hand, this guy's life, the way he died. do you um, feel like you robbed him?
2: We do feel uh, we do feel we wish that we had done things slightly differently and and putting together this sort of uh collegiate prank. But we didn't really know of Glenn Burke at that time.
1: Greg says they hadn't heard of the Glenn Burke story when they pulled this prank. And now that they know it, they really feel bad. In fact, they're now organizing a charity event they're calling
2: The National high 5 a
1: Which will raise money for charity, including one chosen by Glenn Burke's sister, Lutha.
0: I'm very proud. Anytime I see somebody do a high-five, it just really makes me happy.
1: And that seemed like a good end to the story. But, uh, No. Because then John told us that If you really honestly want to get to the bottom of who invented the high five I mean we didn't think we wanted to but now that we're in it what the hell Well you've got to go beyond Glenn Burke's story I've wanted
3: you to believe
1: that he was the hero <laughs> at this point right? <laughs> So maybe I should tell you a little bit about yeah. Derek
3: Smith right? Even though Glenn yeah. Burke died believing that the high five was his legacy At more or less the same moment that he invented it A guy named Derek Smith a basketball player for the Louisville Cardinals was at practice.
4: And a guy named Wiley Brown uh, went up to Derek Smith and was going to give him just an ordinary low five. And Derek Smith looked him in the eye. This is what Wiley Brown told me. Derek Smith looked him in the eye and said, no, up high. That year's Louisville team, they were they were known as the Doctors of Dunk. You know, they're a high flying team, they played above the rim. And John says when Louisville played in the 1980 NCAA finals. I haven't seen it, but apparently the broadcaster referred actually to the high five handshake.
5: The high-five handshake. High-five.
4: He felt compelled to explain it to America, you know. Wow, and did did at the moment that Derek Smith did it, did an asteroid fall on his head or something? Well, <laughs> In 1996, I believe, in, in the 90s, he had an undiagnosed heart condition, and he just died all of a sudden on a, on a cruise ship. What? Yes. And um, he said explicitly to Wiley Brown, this is something I'm going to be remembered for. You know, our kids and our grandkids are going to talk about this. And in fact, our kids and grandkids do talk about it. And they're probably very proud. But.
0: It was Kathy.
1: Then we ran into this
0: woman. You'll have fire what?
1: This is Kathy Gregory. She coached women's volleyball in the 1960s, years before Glenn Burke and Derek Smith. And she says, with her girls. Everyone did it. All the time. So I do believe that it was volleyball
0: that first started it.
1: And interestingly, she says they would high five more when a player screwed up. Yes,
0: no, no. It isn't just about celebration.
1: Because really, when do you need a high five? Of
0: course, it's more when you're down.
1: Yeah, it makes people so happy. So women's volleyball. There you go.
3: Non, because then our producer Lynn Levy also discovered that in the movie Breathless in 1955 at exactly one hour 18 minutes into the film you will see two Frenchmen do a very distinct Haute 5
1: right there isn't this all like an indication to you that, that it, it's maybe it's one of those things that Probably was
3: there, the dawn of man? Because it like gives
1: pleasure. <laughs> yeah. It's just like a <laughs> like from
3: an evolutionary <laughs> a... point of view. No, I don't think so. I think I think this has the feeling of something that was born. I mean, who in this room wants Glenn Burke to be the original guy? Just raise your hand. Me. Yeah, me, me. Yeah.
1: It's the better story. So frankly. look at what's
3: happening here. Every time we look for the original of anything, be it a disease, a contagion, a gesture, we find more than one. So what do you do in this situation? I think, you know,
1: what you do is you just choose. You say, which one is the better story? Let's just go with the best high five. Forget the first, the best. And I think we can do that. Let's just call it Glenn Burke. Glenn Burke invented the high five. Done. All right, high five. High five.
10: Hi, Radio Lab. This is Beatrice Hahn. Radio Lab is produced by Jad Abramrad.
9: This is Kwame. Our staff includes Ellen Horn, Doran Wheeler, Pat Walters, Tim Howard,
5: Brenna Farrell, Len Levy, and Sean Cole. With the help from Jonathan Mitchell, Rachel James,
8: and Matt Kilby. Special thanks to Mike Feller, Chris Condian, Sydney Smith, Ben Feldman, Marva Selchin, and Katie Slocum.
9: That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Okay, you all.
6: Bye-bye.